We recently, or I should say last Lord's Day morning, we examined uh, part of Romans 3 uh, and looking at that uh, fundamental biblical doctrine, and of course it being a Reformation remembrance, uh, how the Reformation rediscovered uh, that truth. Uh, But we understood from Paul's doctrine that only uh, the justification, the only justification, the only being made righteous before God is that which is given of God, and it's the righteousness of Christ. The only righteousness that any of us may have is the righteousness of Christ, and we obtain that by works, no, by faith alone, by trusting in the promise of God. Again, much of what we've read has has reinforced, has reminded, and has, has emphasized that very truth. Now, the Apostle goes on to close chapter 3 by saying a couple of things. He says two important remarks. He says, firstly, that this is the one and only justification that is available and needed for both Jew and Gentile. There is nothing else. This is the only justification that we may have. And secondly, that once we are justified, that does not mean that we do no longer obey the law. On the contrary... We perform the law, we establish the law. Being justified by faith enables us to keep the law in a way that pleases God and is fitting to our profession, as opposed to in our natural and unjustified state of grabbing rules here, of grabbing the law of God there, and making illegal use of it. Thinking that the law of God is some, is some way that would please God to bribe God outside of faith, outside of repentance, outside of the gospel, outside of Jesus Christ. Now, when I'm saying all of that, I've described every false religion and every false ideology and every false Christianity. Hoping against revealed truth, against revealed hope, that they could save themselves somehow. But there is only justification as God gives it, and we only receive it by faith without works of the law. But having come unto God, having approached the law, we establish the law. We establish the law. We live the law by faith through grace. And so in further examining the doctrine of justification this morning, and especially certain aspects of its imputation, we are continuing that remembrance of the Reformation uh, remembrance even today, but it was with the emphasis on the imputation of righteousness, the imputation of righteousness, which is the title of this message that we hope to preach with the Lord's gracious help this morning, the imputation of righteousness. And as we were reading through these 25 verses, uh, they are filled with many, many details, many glorious points that we will, unfortunately, have to pass over. Uh, But we will uh, look, as much as we're able, at the imputation of righteousness. See with me, firstly, first of four points, is the forerunner. The forerunner. So in speaking of justification by faith alone and how it is an absolutely fundamental, necessary part of salvation... And he has said that in chapter 3, and we looked at some of it last week. The apostle then turns the minds of the believers at Rome, and as well as our minds, of course, as we're opening the Word of God this morning, all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, he brings us back over 2,000 years before Christ. 
He brings us to a period of 600 years before the giving of the law in Sinai. Now, we could say, well, why didn't he just go back to Moses? Because Moses is a monumental figure to the Jews. He was the great lawgiver. He was the man that the Lord used to bring his people out of the bondage of Egypt. He was the man that God used to form them into a nation and to give to them the, the, the covenant and the commandments uh, to seal that they were his people and he was their God. But in many ways, greater than a lawgiver was the father of the people themselves. The man, Abraham, whom God had called out of heathen darkness and into gospel light. And it was Abraham that God made that great covenant with. That covenant in many ways was merely confirmed at Sinai. And that covenant, and the Lord gave it in, in, in stages, we may say, looking at the, the calling in, in Something in, in Genesis 13, certainly in Genesis 15, and then, and then more so in Genesis 17, which uh, Romans 4 refers to a number of times. And it was that covenant that God made with Abraham that revealed so much of the covenant of grace. A gracious covenant given to sinners. And it was through Abraham that the long-awaited uh, and promised seed would yet be born. Again, we could go all the way back to Genesis 3 where we, we first meet the, the seed of promise. But it is in Genesis 17 that that's, that's brought out much more. But now uh, we see in Romans 4 how that is understood with New Testament light. And it's important that we understand that. And, and understand that it is through Abraham that God had determined to bless all the nations of the world. And in going back to the Old Testament, and going all the way back to Abraham, to exemplify that spiritual truth that justification is by faith alone and not by works, that the, abolish, the, the apostle abolishes in one fell swoop many misconceptions that many people still have, many Christians still have, about the differences between the Old and the New Testament. Many still hold on to this unscriptural idea. It's an, an idea that's been forced upon Scripture. A man is very proud of it, certain people are very proud of it, and they will keep on, they will keep hold of it. But many still think that the Old Testament is not spiritual, that it is carnal, that it is legalist. That is, all these things are merely points forward to the spirituality of the New Testament. Now, if, if after reading Romans 4, you still come to that conclusion, then you are stiff-necked indeed. Again, others have the idea that the Old Testament salvation was a different salvation, and it was by the keeping of the law. A legalistic salvation, and I can say to you, that's wrong again. Paul writes again and again in chapter 3, but in chapter 4 as he's looking at this Old Testament patriarch and speaking about how God saved him and how he was justified before God again and again and again. Nothing to do with the law. Justification by faith without the works of the law. So he's talked about the doctrine and now he's giving a, a, an, an illustration in Romans 4 to make that very clear to us. There is no legalistic way of salvation. And we'll look at what that truly means when we get to it in Romans 4 this morning. But furthering that idea, there are those, therefore, that teach 
uh, that there is um, that for the Jews this legalistic salvation is still their way of salvation that there is a that there is a gracious salvation to the Gentiles but there's a legalistic salvation to the Jews and that's completely wrong there is only one hope there is only one savior there is only one gospel now the Old Testament let us be clear is as just as spiritual as the new it's just as spiritual in these regards as regards repentance as regards faith as regards loving and obeying God as as regards the need of regeneration and the work of sanctification admittedly this gospel light was far dimmer gospel light was not shining as brightly as it does shine in the New Testament for very clear reasons the light of the world had not yet been incarnated born and started his ministry so those signposts a signpost is in some ways it's a it's a dead dry thing it's just standing on the side of the road but when he who is pointed to by all these various signposts is there what a what a difference a living breathing word of God as opposed to the millions of signposts that were pointing toward him since the beginning of the world yes there were types there were foreshadows in the peoples the names and the events later in the ceremonial law of the tabernacle and later the temple but that need to believe wholeheartedly in the promises of God were as essential to the gospel light given then as to the gospel light we have now and so the Apostle Paul brings us back to this great gospel forerunner Abraham who was the recipient of such a sweet and full grace so that so that so so much so that in the scriptures he is called the friend of God in a number of places but Isaiah 41 and verse 8 we hear the we hear the voice of Jehovah himself saying but thou Israel art my servant Jacob whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham my friend can I just say that that is the top point of justification that we're justified for a reason we're justified unto adoption as children but part of that is to be accepted as friends of God whom we were enemies of and we could say that is the work of atonement the, the, the two parties that were at variance that were enemies of each other have been brought uh, nigh and so nigh that they have become friends through the Savior so we see Abraham is the forerunner but secondly we understand as we read through these scriptures that he's also the father that he is the father and that is we find in Abraham's own name is his, his initial name as he's brought out of of heathendom from Ur of the Chaldees his name was Abram Abram meaning high father or exalted father and that's certainly how the Jews considered him still as their exalted uh, father but they exalted him way too much as we know from the rebuke of John the Baptist John the Baptist in Luke 3 and verse 8 he rebukes them because he says in in a way it's an idolatrous attitude you're looking to Abraham you're looking to Moses but you're not looking unto Jesus and this is what he says bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham indeed we read in verse 1 of our own chapter chapter 4 of Romans 
how the apostle introduces Abraham as the actual, physical, genetic, carnal father of the Jews. Carnal in the sense of as pertaining to the flesh. And that's the phrase he used. What shall we say then, uh, that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? You know, interestingly, this indicates to us, uh, maybe once again, how many Jews there were in the Christian church at Rome. There were many Jews. In in chapter 2, and if you were to go to the latter part of chapter 2, and maybe you are familiar with it, he, he speaks uh, and rebukes uh, the gospel hypocrites who were present in the Old Testament church, and even the gospel hypocrites who were, who were present in the church of Rome, or the church uh, at Rome. And he says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, that is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. He then opens up chapter 3, that closed chapter 2, and, and describes the great privilege of being the recipients of the oracles of God. And this is, this is the privilege for the whole of the church of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament church, having received the, the, the revealed word of God. And God has, has given it to them and he's maintained it within them and preserved it. And what do those oracles reveal? Well, they reveal God to us and they reveal the gospel promises of Christ to us. And later on in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, again he comes back, and it's not the only places, but these are the main places, where he bemoans the unbelief of Jews in general. He bemoans the fact that that they seem to have a zeal for the things of God, and yet there is no faith. There is no repentance. There is no humility. They have a, a religious zeal, and there are so many in the world, in the church, and in other religions that have a great religious zeal, and yet it is ultimately spiritually dead. And he says that he bemoans it. He bemoans the hardness of their hearts towards Christ. But he also reveals the great promise that there is of God toward the Jew. That after the fullness of the Gentiles be brought into the kingdom of Christ, that all Israel should yet be saved. But we see in this very chapter that more than the mere forefather to the Jew, according to the flesh, is revealed, but he is their father as regards the faith, if only they would walk in the footsteps of Abraham their father. So he is the father of the Jew, but we understand, and Paul mentions this a number of times in Genesis, in, Genesis, in Romans chapter 4, that he is also the father of the believing Gentile. He's the father of the Gentile. When the Lord made that covenant with Abraham, or with Abraham in Genesis 17, he included an important name change. Genesis 17 and verse 5. So at the very beginning, as the Lord is opening up this, this chapter on the covenant, Genesis 17, he says, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. So he is no longer the exalted father. And maybe we could look back and think, well, was that a title that he was given in, in his heathen state and, and says something about the idolatrous nature? And we know there are many religions that are obsessed with their ancestors. Ancestor worship is very prominent in the Far East, is very prominent in Africa still. No longer the exalted father, but now a father of many nations, many peoples, literally. 
And so this is not in referencing the fact that, that the Jews would come forth from him, because that's only one nation. Nor is it only referencing uh, the fact that uh, through, um, through his, his firstborn Ishmael and Esau, we know that there were many nations that went forth from those two. Many kings, many nations, many, many blessings. But what it truly points forward to is something that's barely seen in the Old Testament, but is fully revealed and understood in the Great Commission. The Great Commission. That Abraham would be the father of many nations. That he would be the spiritual father of these many Gentiles that were darkened outside of the commonwealth of Israel and yet brought in by the gospel. And that's what we read in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. It says, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, that is the Jew, or upon the uncircumcision, the Gentile also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision, that is, when he had received the sign and seal of that covenant, or or beforehand, what does it say here? Or, or in uncircumcision. Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. So he, being uncircumcised, not having received that seal, that sign and seal in his own flesh, he was already saved, and being saved, he was already justified by faith alone. There wasn't any halfway house. There wasn't any sort of time where he had to do these good works. So not only does this thought that we've just read, that he was saved and justified by faith only before he even received the circumcision, and that removes any thought and any false hope that any sacrament can save you. That should make that very clear. But it also shows this, and this is the point of Paul, the apostle, is that it shows how the faith that Abraham possessed is not only an example to the circumcised Jews, but to every uncircumcised Gentile. And that leads us to the last part of this point. We've seen that he's the father of the Jew, he's the father of the Gentile, the, the believing Gentile, and therefore he is the father of the faithful. He is father of the faithful. Verse 16 uh, really emphasizes this, but there are so many other parts that do so as well. Verse 11, because it's repeated again and again, and he received the sign of circumcision, and we've just read that, that he might be the father of all them that believe. And that truth that Abraham is the spiritual father, the spiritual patriarch of all them that believe is continued in the following verse in verse 12, and in the middle there it says, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. And then verse 16, as I've already mentioned, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, by the undeserved kindness of God. To the end, with this purpose in mind, that the promise might be sure to all the seed. That is a sermon in and of itself. But we must pass over that truth. There is great assurance in realizing that salvation and justification is of, of faith, it is given by grace, that it might be sure. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
That's one of Paul's most important points that he tries to make here in Romans. He makes it in uh, Colossians to some degree. He emphasizes it and repeats it in Ephesians, but in other places also speaking of the unity of the people of God. Yes, we, we, we see there are differences. We see the Hebrews are Hebrews and the Gentiles are not Hebrews. But we see that Abraham, who believed God's promise, and he was justified because of that faith, and not for anything that he had done, that unifies us all as the one gospel, as the one truth, as the one righteousness of God. And so, because the promises of the covenant of grace that were made to Abraham, Genesis 15, and then maybe more fully in Genesis 17, they were made to Abraham, they were made to his seed, then all that desire to be saved must be found within this glorious covenant of grace. They must be saved like their father Abraham was. Because he is their example. He is the example that Paul the Apostle is teaching to us this morning. He is their example and he therefore is become their spiritual father. Saved not by works. Justified not by works. Walking not by boasting. But saved and justified by faith in God's promises only. The saying that God is true and every man a liar. So he is the father, he's the forerunner, he's the father. But let us examine something of the faith, something of the faith that is mentioned here. The gospel is here referred to in verse 13 as a promise. It's a promise, it's a promise, a blessed promise. It's also referred to as a blessedness. But let's just briefly look at what it says here about it being a promise. In verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Those great gospel promises that were made to Abraham and to his seed, his physical seed, and to his spiritual seed, they were not received by obedience to the law. Not at all. But by the righteousness of God. And so God has this righteousness, as we understood last time, even the righteousness of God in verse 22 in chapter 3, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. That's where that righteousness of God comes from. It is the righteousness that Jesus Christ worked, lived, brought forth, keeping every commandment of the law, never sinning, sinlessly living a sinless life, and becoming that perfect and blemish-free and spotless Lamb of God to be sacrificed upon the cross. That pure and holy righteousness is only obtained through faith. As we mentioned last time, you can't buy it. You can't bribe for it. You can't work for it. It is obtained through something which has no strength of man in it. It is only obtained through faith. That is saying yes to the promises of God and entering that promise uh, through the conditions of God. So are the conditions, well, faith and repentance. But Paul continues in verses 14 and 15. He says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Why? Verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath, 
For where no law is, there is no transgression. But there is a law. And what does that law do? That law reveals to us all that we are transgressors of that law, that we have broken that law, that we have twisted that law, that we have ignored that law, and yet that law condemns us as transgressors. The law condemns you and me as sinners. That's what the law does. And so to make use of that law and thinking that it it would declare us innocent is foolishness. It condemns us because the law worketh wrath. And so the attempted keeping of rules, the, of laws, regulations, by sinners is actually impossible. It's impossible to do so. Sin has made us so weak and so unable to keep any commandment. And the problem is, we think that we can. Does that not show us the weakness or the strength of sin and the weakness of our own nature? Because we think we can do that which we cannot. We deceive ourselves. That reveals the sinfulness of our very thoughts and our very desires. But the truth is, to emphasize this, that the Lord does not reveal to us a way of salvation. It reveals to us our need of salvation. And not through the law, but through grace. The law reveals us to be lawbreakers, to be judged, to be condemned, to be under God's wrath. That's what the law does. And therefore, we're not to put any hope or any faith in our attempt to keep anything of the law or any standards that we have or any good habits that we have and think that we will please or impress God because it will not impress God. It is sin. Romans 14 and 23, and the end of that verse says this, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And this is the terrible thing, that, 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 that those who will hear the gospel and think, well, if I do this and I do that, and, and maybe there's some faith as well, I mean, on which foundation are you building your faith? Is it on the completed work of Christ and you have all your faith in Him? Or are you standing on a, on, on, on a broken foundation of self-righteousness? Because where is your soul at the end of the day? God knows. If you're looking to yourself and to standards and and rules and appearances, then you are outside of faith, you are still under wrath, and you despise the blood of Christ. And you say, well, I don't like the idea of how that sounds, but it's true. You're not resting in the grace of Jesus Christ. You're resting upon your own works, which is an abuse of the law. The law worketh wrath, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It's sin upon sin upon sin. I'll have a little bit of Christ, and I'll have a lot of my own sweat and work. The only thing I can say is, I fear for your soul. I fear for your soul. If Abraham were justified by works, he have he hath, we're off to glory, to boast, but not before God. Before man it might work, before your own heart it might work, but before God who judges all men, it will not work. And so therefore we have that need of a true, of a humbling, of a resting, of a saving faith, as the apostle goes on to say in verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace. Therefore, it is a trusting 
that it might be of the free gift of God. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. You see, that's where, that's where the surety is. It's having faith in the promises and the promised seed of God, having, having trust and, and looking to Him only, that gives us assurance that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Now, to the human nature, to the fallen human nature that, that, that strives to work their own righteousness, that looks down upon other people to exalt yourself, that is very contradictory. So you want something, you want something more substantial to stand on. But these are spiritual truths that come down from heaven. You are to look unto Jesus. You're not to stand upon the foundation of your own work. You're to look unto Him and the foundation of His work. And that means letting go and laying hold. Letting go of your own righteousness. Letting go of your own works. Letting go of your own boasting. And laying hold upon Jesus Christ 100%. Faith by grace to the believing Jew under the law. And faith by grace to the believing Gentile. Both of which are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God. You're to believe God. Now, John 14 and verse 1 says, You believe in God, believe also in me, the Lord Jesus Christ says. That would be a saving faith. You can have a, you can have a, a faith in your head, you can have a faith that you've learned. You can say, I believe in God, and yet God's, and yet Jesus Christ himself, believe also in me. He is the promise seed. He is the promise that Abraham believed in. So the forerunner, he is the father. We've looked at the faith, and let us finish as we examine the full imputation. The full imputation, verses 23 to 25. We'll read them together. Now it was not written for his sake alone, for Abraham, that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Let's just briefly consider what this righteousness of God is once again before we consider the imputation of that righteousness. Verse 6 even mentions this to us. It says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. And so we've, we, we, we've already read that in the call to worship this morning, that blessedness, that twofold blessedness that's in Psalm 32. Verses 1 to do, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And then we can add those words again. Blessed is he whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And we could say again, and blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no guile. Well, we could count up to four blessings. So the forgiveness of all sin, this is the righteousness of God by faith, means the forgiveness of all your sin, including all your self-righteousnesses, all your keeping of the law is the forgiveness of all your transgression, the covering also of all your sinfulness. The covering of all your sinfulness. 
the non-imputing of iniquity. That your, your iniquity, which has been removed, it has been covered, is no longer put into your name. And also what he says here in Psalm 32, the rebirth of the Spirit, and in whose spirit there is no guile, there's a change. There's a newness, there's a renewal, there's a rebirth of your very, very spirit. This are things that happen uh, because of and by righteousness by faith, justification by faith. You're legally forgiven, you're legally righteous, you're legally holy, and you're spiritually a new creation, which brings us to the very point of what this whole chapter is pointing to in many ways is the imputation of God. So the righteousness of God and the imputation by God. What is that word imputation? It's not a word that we use in, in everyday language. I was trying to say, you know, what is imputation? Now, some of us might have it very clear on our heads, and many others might, might struggle to describe what it, what it means. Now, imputation literally means to think differently about somebody or someone. To value someone as something different or, 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 or something as different. And essentially it says this, it is points to the change in how God considers you. The change in how he considers you. His thoughts, his evaluation, his ideas are different. So instead of being guilty before God, instead of being under God's wrath, instead of being God's enemy, he looks at Christ's payment for your sin. And he legally credits that payment to your account. And instead of you being sinful before God, even though your sins have been paid for, because you still have your sinful nature, you're still sinning and desiring sin and thinking sin, instead of being sinful, Christ's righteousness is then covering you. It is legally attributed to the believing sinner. So we can see that there's a legal creditation, there's legal thoughts in God's mind. There is, there, is a, there is a judgment over you, there is a penalty towards you, and then he looks at Jesus Christ. And he sees that you are believing in him, and therefore all that he has done for sinners is then accredited to you. It is attributed to you. It is legally transferred to you. Now, the word imputation is given in many ways in this chapter, a number of ways. It says in, in verse 3, it says, uh, regarding imputation, it said it was counted unto him. We could say it was put into his account. And Romans 4, 6 uses the, the word impute, unto whom God imputeth the righteousness without works. God, when he then thinks of that, 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 say, that sinner that, that, that believes on the Savior, then all that the Savior has for the sinner is then in God's thoughts when he looks at you, when he looks at the sinner. And again in verse 9, we have a slightly different phrase. At the end of verse 9, for we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. So we have this, this legal, even a spiritual transfer made by God to debt-ridden sinners who have nothing 
Again, we, we keep saying there is nothing that a sinner has to find favor with God, to obtain the righteousness of God, to get any favor with God, uh, completely in spiritual and moral debt before God. And yet it is taken from, from Christ's account, filled with his infinite and eternal riches, which he has worked for sinners. It's taken from all that he has, and it is given to him. And who, by whom is it given? By God. By the work of man? No, by the grace of God. By the faith in his Son. Which means God gets all the glory. It means the Savior has done all the work. And you're merely trusting in the promises of God. Because there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to cause God to do this legal transfer outside of believing on His Son. Nothing. Nothing. No works of the law, no religion, no works of charity, absolutely nothing. As we've already mentioned, these things cause the wrath of God to to come upon you. Because of all of those things are are of sin. They're not of faith. And all of them are trying to say, is I don't need that blood, or I don't need all of the blood. I don't need thy son, or I just need a helping hand from thy son, and I'll do the rest myself. The father is greatly displeased with those that reject his son in any way. Let me say this, if you look to your works for righteousness, God will look to your works and be wrathful. But if you look to Jesus for righteousness, then God too will look to Jesus and be very pleased. So where are you looking? Where are you hoping? What are you hoping on? When you look by faith to the Son of God, you also look by faith to His work of redemption. You also look by faith to His work of righteousness and to His atoning blood. And that is really what verses 24 and 25 are making it very clear. Or 23 to 25. It was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him. What was imputed to Him? Righteousness. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe, again that's that conditional wording, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised up again for our justification. Those are the two most important things. Those are the two most delivered for our offenses to pay the penalty for our wickedness and raised again for our justification. It was accepted. And that holy righteousness that Christ has earned is then covering us, is then covering us. As uh, Psalm 32 says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that is only obtained by believing on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. For it is he that does the imputing the Father, in all that the Son has earned and done and imputes it to the sinner that comes to the Father through Jesus. Did Abraham know all this detail when he believed in the promises of God? 
I don't think so. Did you believe it when you first came to the Lord? Did you know all these details of imputation and righteousness and justification and, and, and these wonderful truths? No. But God, the Holy Ghost worked faith in your heart and caused you to believe, to see your need of the Lord Jesus and to believe on the Lord Jesus. And then this miracle of miracles, this, this, this legal and spiritual transfer is made in the heavens for your sake. Therefore, we must obtain these promises by faith alone if we are truly to have the righteousness of God and to have a true assurance that that promise is mine. Please, if, if you are looking to your own works in any way, and you may be very pleased with you, but God is not. He's pleased with His Son. And therefore, believe on the Son. Believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And may God bless His Word to us this morning. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank Thee for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for the grace of God in giving Him and in working faith in our hearts. We thank Thee, Lord, that it is by faith alone, it is by grace alone, that we may be found as saved and as righteous in thy sight. We thank thee, Lord, for the blessedness of the man whose sins are forgiven and whose wickedness is covered. We thank thee for the work of Jesus Christ, and there is so much more. We thank thee for a glorious Savior, for the Son of God become man. We thank thee for the glorious gospel and that we can boast in Jesus Christ and Lord, grant us grace that we no longer boast in ourselves, that we would have that faith of our father Abraham so that God would receive all the glory. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our closing song is hymn 319, hymn 319. There is power in the blood. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Let us stand to sing these four verses. Hymn 319, please.